All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you that we're together again today. It's Sunday. Uh, come through the week, and we're ready to learn and worship and pray and praise and edify and build up and enjoy our, our mutual hope and our common goal, uh, which is to see you, see Jesus this morning in the Word, uh, and to just let uh, let all that you're doing in our lives just, just, just rise to the top. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, so we have two weeks left. With Zechariah this week, Malachi next week. We're going through the whole Old Testament, so we did it. Thirty-nine weeks later, actually, probably like forty weeks, right? We took some, had a few weeks off here and there. So we're in Zechariah this week. Um, let's call this a lesson. Of Welcome home. Nothing's changed. <laughs> Welcome home. Nothing's changed for reasons that I hope will become obvious. Uh, to which end I'll probably state that very thing here and again. But um, the prophet Zechariah, definitely one of the more complicated, the more complicated of the, of the so-called minor prophets. Um, but the name Zechariah means Yahweh remembers, which is interesting. I don't know if that's a statement or an accusation. <laughs> right? Yahweh remembers. <laughs> Clearly you don't. Uh-huh. Right? Because... Um, but not necessarily. I don't know that for sure. That's just me sort of playing with the word meaning a little bit. And I don't know the Hebrew, so I don't know if it was. I don't know if there were certain little uh, yodas put in place there that would indicate one one way or the other. But if this is a post-exilic writing, which means what? If we're in post-exile, what are we talking about? Where are they? Where are the people? In Babylon. Yeah, well, well, this is after the exile, post. So this is after. So many of them are back in Jerusalem. Uh, a number of them were allowed to go back, and, and you might recall from Ezra and Nehemiah rebuilding the temple. Uh, but the, the, the Persians are still in charge, right? Um, and it's been about you know seventy years since the captivity happened, right? And so the question is, in the minds of the people, is God now going to fulfill what He said about restoring the land of the people? Because you may recall that Jeremiah had prophesied that there would be a captivity of seventy years. And so that has come to its end. And we know that God rose up Cyrus. And now Darius is, is king. Uh, Zechariah is one of two prophets. The other is Haggai. Or Haggai. Uh, the God sent prophets God <coughs> sent to motivate the people to build the temple. And, and that was the case because there was some delay in the temple being built. You might recall again from Ezra there was some uh, harassment happening and People complaining back and forth to the king, you know, oh king, these people are trying to build and you know what these people are like and they're known as rebels and they're going to build the place up again and you're not going to have your, you know, your control of things anymore. So things got delayed, the people got discouraged. If we go over to the book of Ezra chapter 5, just quickly, I don't have to go that, but I will. Uh, chapter 5 verse 1 and over in chapter 6 verse 14, we see their names show up. Now the prophet... Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. And then over in the sixth chapter, verse 14, And the elders of the Jews built and prospered, through the prophesying of Haggai and the prophet and Zechariah, the son of Ido. So, and they finished their building by the decree of God and by the decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. So, you'll recall that there was a command given 
by the king to let them rebuild. But first there was a decree that came from God. So we see God once again using kings and instruments to bring about his will and that these prophets were a great encouragement to the people uh, who had been greatly discouraged by the opposition to the work of God which has just constant, constant application for us and God's people throughout all ages. The passion narratives in the Gospels quote more from Zechariah than any other Old Testament source. Okay, so you'll recall, uh, so, and you'll see this in the 9th, 10th, and 13th chapters here of Zechariah, reference to Jesus riding in on a donkey, and those who, uh, him who they pierced, and 30 pieces of silver, and strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. These are all from the book of Zechariah. And again, no other Old Testament sources quoted as much in the Gospel narratives, not, not, not the New Testament, but the Gospel narratives, as the prophet Zechariah, which tells us something very meaningful. Just as God, as the people were coming back into Jerusalem, and they were going to build up Jerusalem again, and God was going to do what He had always planned on doing, and He was going to bring that about through people, and He's going to do it and show them in little ways, as we'll see, like using Joshua the priest, and Zerubbabel the king, and how they're going to bring those offices together, and we see all kinds of little things happening that are being fulfilled then and there, but which also have a future application of a great and wonderful and enduring kingdom, which will never end. Uh, the genre of the book is mixed. It's somewhat apocalyptic, because we get some end time stuff in here, and we get judgment, and we get you know Satan, and angels, and visions going on. So it has that apocalyptic or revelatory revelation, God revealing the end times, has that sense going on. We'll bump into that. And then, and then there's lots of oracles in here. You know, warnings against the nations and against Israel and against individuals. And of course, the ongoing promises of God. Now, nothing has changed. This is what God has always been, been doing. We continue to see this. It struck me throughout this book. All we're seeing is more of the same. Except God doing more and more to bring it about. He's doing exactly what He said He would do. Uh, a little bit about sort of the apocalyptic portions, uh, the, the apocalyptic genre that we run into here. Uh, in his commentary on the Minor Prophets, Thomas McComiskey says that it's easy to read too much into symbols, right? And we must be careful to base our conclusions only on the text's intentions. If a text does not define a symbol, its significance may not lie within the text's interests. So when we get to the first vision that he has, the colors of the horses... We have no idea what those colors mean because nothing is said about the colors of the horses. There's nothing given away in the text about that. And if God wanted it to be known, he would have made it known because as we'll see also, there are points at which the prophet says, what does this mean? And then the angel tells him what it means. So the colors of the horses don't necessarily mean so much. It's not necessary to the understanding of the vision. Uh, two major sections in the book. Um, oh, and then of course the other thing is visions, right? So, so for Zechariah, the visions he gets, he gets in the nighttime. They're like dreams. And they're not unlike our dreams. I mean, I've had some bizarre dreams in my life. I don't know about y'all, but I've had some... I can remember a dream. I don't know why I had a dream. This is one of the most bizarre dreams. I had this years and years ago. I was being... I was in a... In a you remember PT boats? They were they were used in the Navy. I was being chased in a PT boat by... Uh, <laughs> by who was Jack Nicholson <laughs> who, who was shooting at me and I actually got shot and I fell into the, I felt the bullets go into me as I was sinking into the water I could feel the bullets going into my chest and like the light oozing out of me and I woke up right so I mean we, we have bizarre things happen in our dreams that have like seemingly no connection to reality right uh, you've heard one of the common dreams is 
you know, you have your dream and you're going to school and you're on the school bus and you realize you're in your underwear, you know what I mean? And these, these common types of dreams that happen among people, dreams about teeth falling out, or dreams about these weird kinds of themes that have to do with something. And most dreams probably have some profound meaning to them that we just never get in touch with, but for Zechariah, he does. And then, and then the book then is broken really into two major sections. Chapters 1 through 8 deal with sort of current realities and circumstances, even though they're, what's, what's going on with that is offered through dreams and visions. Um, and then chapters 9 through 14 really are eschatological. In other words, having to deal with things yet to come and, and above all, the, the end of things. So we have the immediate future and the distant future. For example, Joshua the priest and Zerubbabel the king are both used by God to reestablish the law and the covenant in Israel. And we know, of course, that you know when Jesus comes, he fulfills the law. We know that in Joshua, we have the offices of priest and king. And both of those, I mean, in, uh, and in Zerubbabel, we have between the two of them that God uses the offices of priest and king in the development of God's people, which, of course, is... Uh, fully exemplified in Jesus. So let's dive in. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes which I commanded, my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds. So he has dealt with us. So, Again, nothing has changed about God. He's the same as he ever was. The terms of the relationship are the same, right? And so, but the people now, at least, at least with their lips, acknowledge and repent, right? They acknowledge that God has dealt with them according to how He said He would, and that yeah, you were right, we were wrong. Here we go. So that's a good beginning, right? And so it's important for the people to understand now that you're back in here. Don't, don't. Nothing has changed. Again, welcome home. Nothing has changed. It's exactly the way it was before. Okay, so now we get into this series of visions where we see uh, horses and chariots and a flying scroll and man with a measuring line and a woman in a basket and flying women uh, and, and priests in filthy clothes and golden menorah and olive trees. So there's all these things that are in here that are meaningful. Um, and, and except for the for the fourth vision, out of the eight visions, uh, it's sort of the same pattern. So some symbol or something is shown in the vision, and then Zechariah asks what the symbol means, and then the angel explains it, which again is not dislike what we see going on in what book in the New Testament? What is the book in the New Testament where there are things going on and there's being, okay, what, yeah, the Revelation, right? And it's important to understand that because there is... Always reiterate this. Can't divorce the Revelation from so much of the Old Testament. If you want to understand the book of Revelation, you've got to go through Daniel and Zechariah and Ezekiel and Isaiah in particular. But with the whole big picture of what God's doing anyway, going all the way back to Genesis, 
because what we see at the end of the Revelation is what we see at the beginning of Genesis where we have a lovely garden and a river and life abundant and the book of Revelation ends the same way with a river flowing and, and, and leaves which are for the healing of the nations and all these wonderful things that were happening in the beginning where God is fully doing the very thing he always said he would do so in the first vision we have this vision of a number of horsemen right and so you have these uh, again it doesn't give any particular meaning and there seems to be no meaning to the myrtle tree either um, but we do see that they're patrolling the earth and so in the horses the horses report which is strange because horses don't talk uh, but the horses sort of through this report that all is at rest right? all is at rest so we read in verses 14 to 16 um, so the angel walked with me who talked with me said to me cry out thus says the Lord of hosts I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion and I am exceedingly angry while the nations that are at ease for while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. So he says there in 15, I am exceedingly angry while the nations that are at ease. So the, the peace that the horsemen had sort of reported as they patrol the earth, uh, <clears throat> The, the question is, why, why are these nations that conquered us at peace and rest? Why is everything okay? I mean, is God going to do something or, or isn't he? All right? And God gives no indication of the timing for what he just said, which says, I've returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built, declaring the Lord of hosts. The measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. So he doesn't give a timing for that. There will, of course, be Jerusalem will be rebuilt to some extent with the temple. But we also see in the book of Revelation, you go out there, there's a measurement of the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven offered as well. So, and that is the first of these eight visions that God, yeah, that these nations that persecuted and oppressed Israel, they are at rest and at ease, but they ain't about to remain that way. Things are going to change. Right? I mean, we, we look in our life and we say, what? Well, it's not so much a matter of, you know, why do the wicked prosper, but it is that kind of a question. We see what's going on in our country and it is happening at breakneck speed breakneck speed the things that are going on in our country it, it, isn't it dizzying? I mean it's happening so fast it's like it's almost like you know you get in a car accident somebody rear-ends you, you you suddenly get hit you get T-boned and you, it takes you time to understand what is oh I just got in an accident you know when you, you, you have a, you, you, you're, you're somewhat in shock and so you may not even realize you've got broken bones or you know, you're bleeding out of the side of your head. And it, it takes some time to, to get back to reality to understand what's I feel like that's where we're at with sometimes, don't you? But we can't get back to reality. Yeah, it's like we, we just, yeah, we just... And, and the people, it's like, you know, the guy that's driving the car, they hit you, he's, he's doing fine. He just drove off. You know, He's doing okay. The police haven't pulled him over. He's sitting there saying, what's going on? So that's kind of what's, what's happening there. And then, and then he has another vision. A vision of horns and craftsmen. And the, the, four, the four horns basically represent the enemies of God and, and God's people. And not just the people that are enemies, but, but lusts and power, for power and oppression and those kinds of things. But mainly the people that are oppressing and have been oppressing them. And God is going to destroy them. All right, Verse 21. Uh, <clears throat> he says... <clears throat> and I said, what are these coming to do? That's a reference to the, to the 
to the craftsmen because these four craftsmen showed up after the four horns. He said, These are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head. And these, meaning the craftsmen, have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. So, horns always represent that power. You see that in the book of Daniel. <clears throat> you see it much written about the horns. And horns just represent power. And, and uh, uh, typically evil ruling power. I think it shows up in the Revelation as well. Okay, but in the craftsmen, it's interesting, craftsmen, other translations use the um, uh, blacksmiths, so I guess the maker of weapons, right? Uh, they're going to be dealt with. Now, this will be fulfilled probably when, when Alexander the Great comes and just starts taking over the world, right? I mean, Persia did a great job. The Babylonians, they came and they conquered, they took over uh, Assyria, but no, none of these evil kingdoms last forever. And then... Uh, so then the Persians come and conquer the Babylonians and then something's going to happen. Somebody's going to conquer the Persians. That's only going to last so long. And that, that's when Alexander comes along. Somewhere around 333, somewhere B.C. Okay? <clears throat> so God is aware. God knows what's going on and God is dealing with it in His time and in His way. <clears throat> then we have uh, another vision. It's a vision of a, of a measuring line. Okay? And... Uh, and then also, we, we, we get this, uh, we'll see this wall of fire, that God is a wall of fire. Let's read a couple of verses from here. Uh, verse 5, chapter 3, I'm in, I'm in uh, chapter uh, 2, still, right? Yeah, in verse 5, um, chapter 2, verses 5, 10, and 13. Uh, verse 5 says, And I will be to her a wall of fire all around declares the Lord. And I will be the glory in her midst. Verse 10. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I dwell in your midst, midst declares the Lord. Verse 13. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for He has roused Himself from His holy dwelling. He has roused Himself. Boy, when Scripture says something about God rousing Himself. Right? I mean, you just get this picture of God you rouse yourself, you know, you motivate yourself. You lay in bed and just say, all right, got to get up and get going. And you get up and you get going. Well, God's always getting up and getting going. But the language here is, is such that God is ready to really do something significant. Uh, and the, and, the, and the, the man with the measuring stick is going to measure Jerusalem to see what it's with and what its length is. And the importance of this, too, is that it, you know, walls are, are, are critical to the fortification of a city. Now, at this point, there are no great walls that have been rebuilt yet. But God, just like the Shekinah glory that went before the Israelites as a pillar of fire, says, I am going to be a wall of fire all around Jerusalem. So that presence of God and that glory of God is going to be the assurity, the assurance, I'm sorry, the assurity and the assurance that Israel and God's people are protected by God Himself in His brightness and His glory as He rouses Himself to protect Israel. And look after his interest. So you have that going on. And then you have another vision. Uh, it, you know, I don't know what the, what the um, series of this doesn't seem to be an indication of how often these dreams came. Like if it was one night after another, or if he had to sort of sit around and, and, and he got meaning from the angels. Uh, but a lot of this, a lot. I mean, I, don't, I wake up from a dream and. If it's important, I might pick, make some notes about what it is. But I wake up and I forget most. I'll, I'll know I dreamt. 
Uh, do you all dream? Do people dream still? Oh, yeah. Do you all have a lot of dreams? Yeah. I, I, I still do. Um, so then we have, uh, so we have this fourth scene now. And this fourth scene is, this one's pretty wild, all right? We have the scene of a vision of Joshua, the high priest. And uh, it's kind of, I guess, a judicial scene, okay? Where we have Joshua standing there before God. Let's read this. Uh, verses 1 through 4. Then he showed me Joshua. This is the Zechariah saying what the angel doing. The angel is showing Zechariah. Showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. And Satan, <clears throat> Satan means accuser, by the way, may not necessarily be the personality Satan. It may be Satan. It's, in Hebrew, it's Hasatan, which, again, can be differentiated from a proper name, but it is the accuser who shows up in the book of Revelation. The accuser of the brethren is cast out. Standing in his right hand to accuse him. So it looks like it's kind of like a legal scene here. We go before the, the judges of the city. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken away your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Are you, this is not a brand plucked from the fire. What does this represent, do you suppose? Well, this is such a great thing. Uh, yeah, any, any sense of what this is going on here? By the way, one one of the commentators calls this the gospel according to Zechariah, of course, in the scripture. Well, says so that we're nothing that no righteousness that we've done. It's all like filthy rags and yeah, God's God. Yeah, so certainly is that. Taking yeah. away all of our righteousness, then yeah. it could be replaced with something else. Yeah, and and fire as well always you know often representing judgment. So here's this this stick, this burning stick or or brand being taken out of that fire. You know, which is great news. It's not going to be consumed. The judgment is not going to consume God's people altogether. Um, and then in verse 8, you get it's, it's interesting because you get some interesting sort of parallel or some symmetry going on here where we read, uh, Hear now, O Joshua the high priests, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. It's interesting that we have a stick taken from the fire and the branch is coming at some point. Now, there's very little is indicated elsewhere in this. The branch is going to be mentioned again. Okay? But that's basically God's answer to Satan, the accuser. His answer, his response is the branch. All right? This is a stick taken from the fire and the branch is going to come. <clears throat> Isaiah 11 1 explains the branch a little more fully. And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of its roots. And in Revelation 22.6, Jesus himself affirms, I am the root and the offspring of David. So, so we're seeing some, as we always do, often do in the Old Testament, if, if we're attentive to it, uh, these things that are going to happen then and there, things that are going to be fulfilled again much later on down, down the line. Again, we don't have any indication here, nor do we find out anywhere in the book when this is going to happen. This, my servant, the branch, will come that, out. That, that word branch yes. may have connections with, as it says in James, uh, Matthew 3, 
Uh, he dwelt in a city called Nazareth because he shall be called a Nazarene, which was spoken by the prophets. Mm-hmm. And that word Nazarene has a reference to roots and branch. Interesting. Interesting. So that could be you know, a reference to the book of Zechariah in a general way, referring to him as the branch. Yep, absolutely, man. Absolutely. Good stuff. Good stuff. Um, the branch comes up again in that language comes up again. You know, Paul says if the if the if the root is holy, then the branches are also. And we know when uh, we see that I am the vine, you are the branches. That kind of thing is always going on. <laughs> we are so much a part of who Jesus is. It's hard to know that sometimes, man, isn't it? Hard to that identification we have with Christ. Sometimes you know, sometimes there, you know. I, there, there are kids that look like if, if they're with their mother you see the kid and says yeah it looks like the mom and then you see him with the dad and it looks like the dad and then there's sometimes we have what the black sheep of the family it looks like nobody in the family sometimes I feel that way right My that identification that I have with Jesus I don't it's hard to see that sometimes you know because you look at the never failing Jesus you know the never given into temptation the constant love for other people never, never even when the disciples were repeatedly stupid you know, never shunning or shaming them, you know? I mean, Jesus did it right all the time, man. Paul says Christ is being formed in you. Mm, yeah. So some of the time the development is slower yep. than others with us. Yep. I wish sometimes we would have growth spurts. <laughs> like, a, you know, sometimes a kid can have growth spurts when they're growing. Well, I can see it in others, so I, I can see y'all growing, and hopefully you can see me. Um, so that's really neat, right in the middle of all these visions where you get that sort of fourth vision of because everything that comes before and afterwards doesn't have a whole lot of um, its connectedness doesn't really happen unless and until we see that there is something that's going to make that come about. All the things that God is saying, they have to do it here and now because God is going to do all these things. God is going to pardon the iniquity of His people right then and there. I mean, this is happening now. I mean, in a way, Joshua also represents all the people, right? Not just the priesthood. He does represent the failed priesthood. The priests had failed miserably. But it represents Israel in general. Right? Again, as does Jesus. And Jesus fulfills the mission of Israel, right? I've shared this before. I forget who said it. I wish I could give credit to the person that Jesus is Israel reduced to one. You know? So true. I don't know who said that. Sounds like something like D.A. Carson would say. Right? <laughs> something something D.A. Carson would say or something, but I read that somewhere once upon a time. You did. Yeah, yeah. I heard you say that. Yeah, yeah. I like, I like that. that. I like that. That's what it says. My servant have I called forth out of Egypt. Well, for my son have I called out of Egypt. So Jesus it's... recapitulates so much of what went on in the history of Israel. Everything from the Exodus to the baptism, everything. Yeah. You know, because he had to. And God's plan had to be fulfilled. It wasn't that God was just say, okay, well, that, that that didn't get accomplished. No, that has to be it. That has to be accomplished. It was God's. It can't not be accomplished. It's impossible. And we have this fifth vision of the golden lampstand and the two olive trees that, that fill the lamp with the golden oil, right? Uh, and we're going to see in here that God will complete the work He began. So we're in chapter four. Read a few verses there. I'm going to read verses two to three. And He said to me, "What do you see?" I said, "I see, and behold, a lampstand all of gold." with a bowl on the top of it and seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other one is on the left. And then uh, down in verse 6, 
it's funny that no, here it is. then he said to me this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel not by might nor by, nor by power but by my spirit says the Lord of hosts mm-hmm. who are you O great mountain I'll read a little bit more before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace grace to it and in verse uh, 12 to 14 and a second time I answered him and said what are these two branches of the olive trees which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out he said to me do you not know what these are I said no my lord then he said these are the two anointed ones who stand by the lord of the whole earth a reference there to Zerubbabel and to Joshua Again, remember the comments we've already made about the offices of high priest and king coming together to accomplish this thing. And you've got the number seven showing up in here, right? Remember the number of seven is always a number of completeness. And there are seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it. Okay, so the, and the two olive trees will continue to give the oil and, and that which can bring about the light. Right? Oil represents always the... So the menorah, the menorah always represents Israel as, 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 as God's light to the Gentiles, and also God's presence. So God's presence mediated through these office of priest and king, through, and, and, and of course, prophet. Right? These are the three great, you know, don't hear much about this. Uh, the, the first time, though, that I really got in touch with the doctrines of grace, I went to a, a, a Ligonian ministry conference in Boston back in 1999. Uh, that was being hosted with, you know, R.C. Sproul was talking about the offices of prophet, priest, and king. I had never heard anything about that, so, you know. It's all throughout the Old Testament. How all those things, God has always used those, the prophet, the priest, and the king, to represent different parts of his righteous rule over his kingdom. Right? And how he's doing what he's doing in developing and forming and shaping his people. Using the prophet, the priest, and the king the prophet to speak the words of God, the priest to mediate the presence of God to the people, to represent the people to God, and God to the people, and of course the king, the righteous ruler. God has always given us ways to understand. We can't use our government as an example. <laughs> so, fortunately we have this, because there's nothing in our government that seems to represent order any longer. Uh, <clears throat> okay, so that God's going to use them to fulfill his covenant, right? which again, we're going to see that. In Jesus, big time. Uh, and then we get this vision of a flying scroll, which seems to represent the Ten Commandments. Look at verses 3 and 4 of chapter 5. <clears throat> so he sees a vision of this flying scroll and says, Then he said to me, This is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side, and everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. Okay? Um, I will send it out declares the Lord of hosts and it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name and it shall remain in his house and consume it both it timber and stones what's going on with that what's going on with that what are we seeing here so so this flying scroll obviously has the law of God on right it's got the commandments of God and it's interesting Again, one, uh, I forget, one of the commentators said probably the first four commandments are represented on the first side and the second six on the other side because the first four are against God, right, directly, and then the other six are against God's people, which is what we see when it says, I'll send it out. Uh, he says, 
uh, it shall enter the house of the thief. We have thou shalt not steal, which is in the second half of the Decalogue. In the first half, it talks about taking God's name in vain, or him who falsely swears by my name. So it's interesting there. But this represents the curse of the law. And the law is the law still the law hasn't changed, right? Nothing has changed. This is God's initial covenant he made with his people at Sinai, right? The Ten Commandments, the Decalogue given at Sinai to God's people. The the covenant sort of contract that was going on there is still in place. And that law that is going to be applied and that God's not going to tolerate the same old stuff. It's still in place. Uh, the seventh vision, we see a woman in a basket. Right? It's great visions. A woman in a basket. And then we see that basket being carried off by other two, two other women with wings. Now, we're not going to be confused. I know I, I, I might have mentioned this before in the past, and I hate to ruin your, your image of angels, but angels don't have wings. Okay? Seraph might have them, and, and cherubim might have wings, you know, lions and, and all kinds of But angels themselves do not have wings. So these are not angels. I don't know what they are. They're these sort of women with wings carrying off this basket which has a woman in it. And what is that all about? Well, <clears throat> verses 5, 7, and 10 um, <clears throat> of the fifth chapter. The angel who talked with me came forward and said, Lift your eyes and see what is going out. And I said, What is it? He said, This is the basket that's going out. And he said, This is their iniquity in all the land. And behold, the leaden, the leaden cover was lifted, and there was a woman sitting in the basket. And he said, This is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the lead uh, opening that was on its top. Right? And then in the uh, uh, verse 7, uh, I'm sorry, over in verse 10, Then I said to the angel, talk to me, where are they taking the basket? And he said, to the land of Shinar, which is Babylon, to a, to a house built for it. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. In other words, the sin is going to be carried away. That iniquity is going to be removed. And it's going to be taken away. Uh... And then the final, the final vision that we have is a vision of four chariots. So the horses sort of make another appearance. And this time the horses are sort of going about through the north territory. Um, now the north, you always have to attack Israel from the north. That's the way you can't go through the mountains. You've got to come around to the north a bit if you're coming from that side. Um, in, in verses uh, 7 and 8 of chapter 6, when the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, Go, patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. And then he cried to me, Behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. This is a vision. As chariots often are, God will appear on chariots. Oftentimes this is in judgment. God is going to judge the enemies. He's going to avenge the enemies of Israel who have been coming at them from the north. And he's going to bring about rest when that happens. So we've had these series of visions now that give us a picture of where God's people have been, where they are now, what the sort of means of staying, what the means of relationship with God continues to be, because God is going to carry sin away. We, what we're seeing is a lot of what God is doing to create the people He always had in mind. They're going to be a people whose iniquity has been removed from them, and this is going to be accomplished through something, which we saw back there in the fourth vision, the branch, right? And then how that plays out in the in the different offices of prophet, priest, and king. So in these eight visions, we have this tremendous, and, and this comes in the midst of you know, imagine how these visions could ignite the imaginations and spark the worship of God's chosen people, right? There's this theology and this doctrine and there's the stuff of covenant in here. And God's prophet here, Zechariah, who's got some of the coolest visions of all of the prophets, I think. Uh, Zechariah's really gotten a, a, a full... He's got like the whole 
all the prophets tend to communicate, you know, what, you know, going back to our hermeneutic, right, but about God's righteous rule and how men respond to that and then how God responds to man. They all do that, but there's so much, there's a lot of color in this going on. A lot of really neat things. And so the people in Zechariah is going to be able to communicate these things to the people and assure them and give them the hope. And again, continuing to just reinforce all, nothing has changed. <laughs> Welcome home. Nothing has changed. Okay, and we get into chapter 7 and 8, which is sort of these, um, chapter 7, verses 2 through 6. It says, Now, <clears throat> the people of Bethel had sent Sherezer and Regemmelech in there, men to entreat the favor of the Lord, saying to the priests of the house of the Lord of hosts, Should I weep and abstain in the fifth month, as I have done for so many years? Then the word of the Lord of the hosts came to me, Say to all the people of the land, the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh for these 70 years, right? So, every, so for every second and fifth month there was fasting, the 70 years while they were in captivity, was it for me that you fasted? Really? Was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Okay, so this idea of the fasting that you engaged in, this pretentious religion had nothing to do with faithful obedience. Don't deceive yourselves. Okay? And, and in verses 8 and 9, he continues... And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against one another in your heart. Went into verse 10 there. So, so nothing has changed. This is, this, is, this is the way it's supposed to be. This is what you do when you follow me. This, don't come asking me necessarily about fasting. You know that you didn't fast for me. You know when you when you eat and drink, you're not eating and drinking, all doing all that you do to the glory of God. This, and it's just going back to what it always went back to, right? Uh, you know, pure and under James says, pure and undefiled religion is this: to visit widows and orphans in their afflictions, and to keep yourself unstained from the world. James is, you know, very steeped in Old Testament wisdom. And then in verses 12 to 14, when he's talking about talking about when God had given these commandments initially how to treat people, they made their hearts diamond hard. <laughs> we heard about hard hearts in the Scripture. It's a diamond heart. The hardest substance known on earth, right? They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by His Spirit to the prophets. Therefore, great, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. As I called and I would not hear, so they called and I would not hear, said the Lord of hosts. And I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations that they had not known. Thus the land was left desolate, so that no one went to and fro, and the pleasant land was made desolate. That's what happened. That's what happened. So be mindful of that when you're asking me about what little practices can I do to show myself faithful again. It has to do with the heart. Chapter 8, we see that God is is going to uh, redeem Israel. Uh, It will be the light to the Gentiles, as God always intended. Uh, Verses 14 through 17, For thus says the Lord of hosts, as I purposed to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, and I did not relent, so again I have purpose in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear not. I'm a God who keeps my word. I told you I'd bring about ruin, and I did. I'm telling you to bring about good. Sound familiar? <coughs> Haven't I been saying this to you now for about 1,500 years? These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true, and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. And in verse 23, 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, when God does this, when he accomplishes this, in those days, ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take a hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, let's go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. See, that's what Israel was supposed to be. It was supposed to be the light to the Gentiles. It was supposed to be, this is... This is who God is. And so it's going to be that way. It's going to be that way that there's going to be there's going to be ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew saying, let us go. Let me go with you up to the temple to worship God. Right? This is an amazing thing. Um, and then it's really amazing that, that you think of Paul in the New Testament and he gives this, you know, when they're about to come and add him in, in the... In, the, the Romans are concerned that he's going to be torn limb from limb, so they're going to bring him in where he's to safety. Before he brings him in, he, he asks if he can speak to the people, and then he waves his hand, and he speaks to them, gets their attention, starts speaking to them in the native tongue. And he starts talking about all these things that God did in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament. And then he mentions the Gentiles. Like, away with this man! You know, he deserves to die! It's amazing, isn't it? That even at that point, and even in, if they did the same thing with Jesus, as soon as Jesus mentioned something about someone other than the Jews, the first time he spoke in the temple, the first time he spoke publicly in the synagogue, we made reference to the Samaritan woman, right? And he made reference to, to, uh, to, to, to uh, Nahum, the Syrian, the people wanted to throw him off a cliff. Right? Not knowing, somehow, the big plan of God, the God's elect people who he, would, who he chose to represent him, to bring revelation of himself to the people. They're all caught up and twisted up in that, thinking that this was just for them. Then we get into verses 9 to 14, which again are considerably different than uh, what's been going on in the rest, because it's all it's very future. Um, it's commentary, uh, creation of the cross. Albert Bailey says, Zechariah gives us not an event-by-event calendar for future events, but pictures of events like pages in an album. Each page is dedicated to a particular slice of the future. So this isn't sort of a linear thing necessarily, that this is all happening in order. And also that the full redemption is in the future. Because of the things we see in here, we know in the, from the future, now that we have the New Testament, we know that the things that he's about to talk about, right? Jesus is the smitten shepherd. He is the shepherd king. He is the one who is pierced. He is the one riding on a donkey. He is the one whose life was valued at 30 pieces of silver. He is the king who judges and rules the nations and ushers in the kingdom of God, right? And God's righteous rule over his kingdom. And we see all of those elements here in chapters 9 through 14. Chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey, right? In, uh, again, the, the commentator goes on to say, when Christ fulfilled the hope that this text creates, he initiates the conquest of our greatest oppressor, the sinful human heart. And by his submission to death on the cross, he enabled God to forgive their iniquity and remember their sins no more. That's why it is rejoice, O daughter of Zion. Your king is coming. Not the guy that's going to crush Rome. Not the guy that's going to bring political victory and clout to, Rome, uh, to Jerusalem and cast out the Romans. No, no. I mean, eventually all that stuff is going to happen. Before that happens, so by the way, your entire city is going to be destroyed. Your people are going to cannibalize each other. <clears throat> and we see uh, in, in, in verse 16 and 17 of that same chapter 9, it says, On that day, 
The Lord their God will save them as the flock of His people. For like the jewels of a crown, they will shine on His land. For how great is His goodness. And how great is His beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. Everything is going to be tremendous and wonderful when God is in His rightful place and we are all in His rightful place under Him in the kingdom. Forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. And we come over to chapter 10. You see that God's going to restore His people again as promised, including rescuing them from the so called shepherds. So we see a pronouncement against the shepherds here, which is another theme that shows up in the prophetic writing. Ezekiel wrote a lot about this, right? In the false shepherds, chapter somewhere around 33 or 35 of Ezekiel. He says, My anger is hot against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders. For the Lord of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like his majestic steed in battle. Make them like his majestic seed in battle. Um, he goes on to say in here, so 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 the, the he, he's going to he's going to wipe out the false shepherds, but the, the false shepherds and the bad shepherds are not the only thing that's that's wrong. Okay, and we get to chapter eleven, and we see that Zechariah is going to be made a shepherd over the people, but the people reject him and choose to follow false shepherds. Okay. It's kind of like the give us Barabbas of the New Testament. Right? So the true shepherd, we'll see the true shepherd. Uh, so you have these false shepherds in here and in the chapter. Zechariah deals with them a little bit. But him who was to be made a shepherd by God, right? Because God basically says, I'm going to make you shepherd to a flock doomed for slaughter. Okay? Um, we get to verses 12 to 13. Um, he said, then I said to them if it seems good to you give me my wages but if not keep them and they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver then the Lord said to me throw it to the potter the lordly price at which I was priced by them so I took the 30 pieces and, said, and that's a sarcastic the lordly price Okay, 30 pieces of silver was basically what you pay for a slave so I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter so the true shepherd considered only worth the price of a slave. They reject him and, and God's going to remove them. He's also going to remove the worthless shepherds. He says over in 17, Woe to my worthless shepherd who deserts the flocks. May the sword strike his arm in his right eye. Let his arm be wholly withered, his right eye utterly blinded. We know that Jesus dealt severely with the false leaders and shepherds. In, in the, so I think there's something in here telling us about this time that was going to be in, in, in the future. We know how Jesus dealt with the Pharisees. We know that the people were like sheep without a shepherd. But we also know when the true shepherd showed up, many of the people rejected him. Right? Chapter 13. Uh, <clears throat> I'm sorry, uh, chapter 12. Uh, verse 7. And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. Right? In verse 10. Uh, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. 
So we have God here. Uh, God is going to bring about through this mercy and through this grace. They're going to recognize at some point that they have what they have done to their Messiah. Now that hasn't happened yet. Not to you know Romans 11 has something to say about that. There's a lot left to happen. I think a lot of Israel can yet turn to God. Will yet turn to God if I understand Romans 11 correctly. They will look on Him, look on Him whom they pierced. Again, we're seeing all these things that are a reference to Jesus. It's interesting that it's interesting that in this prophecy, God is speaking, right? And what does He say here? He says that they'll look on Me, on Him who they have pierced. Very interesting. Very interesting little bit of um, high Christology there, embedded in those verses. Chapter 13, we get to the people cleansed by the smitten shepherd, right? So, verse 1 of chapter 13 says, On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Verse 7, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones, verse 9, and I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one who refines silver and test them as gold is tested. The portion we want to see here more importantly, they will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say, the Lord is my God. Mm. This, uh, so, so we have, we see here, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. This happened with Jesus, right? And the immediate application, of course, was the disciples. But God also says here, I'll turn my hands against the little ones. It could be something that's, you know, that Christ was crucified in, by the Jews, you know, and the Romans, but by the Jews, and the people that turned once again against Messiah, which would bring about the end in, in 70 AD. So God continuing to tell us through the prophets, telling them here, and this idea of I will be my God and they will be my people, again, nothing new here. Nothing has changed. This has been repeated throughout God's history. Genesis 17.8 I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. I will be their God. Ezekiel 14.11 In order that the house of Israel may no longer stray from me and no longer defile themselves with all the transgressions, thus they will be my people and I shall be their God, declares the Lord. He's the one that brought it about. Then he's going to be the one that continues always to bring about what is needful for God's people to be His people. I take a lot of, I take a lot of comfort in this because I consistently get that reminder. Whether he's talking about, you know, uh, you know, God's pouring out His Spirit on Zerubbabel and saying, well, you know, what do you all, what do you, what do you, O mountain, before you, before Zerubbabel, you should become a plain. And you think about like the picture of that, right? How do you, how do you, you know, I go to my yard and I've got highs and lows on the lawn, and each year I'll see, you know, I got to knock that high down a little bit and put put some some loom on that and reseed it and make it a nice level place. You know, it takes, you know, you're out there in the hut and the toil and the sweat. And so you get this imagery of a great mountain becoming a flame, which just speaks to the magnitude of the work that God can do and that the kind of power necessary to accomplish. What does, it, what does it take to make a plane out of a mountain, a flat surface out of a mountain? What does it take to bring about all the things that God is? Well, it's God's work. He's the one that initiated it. He's the one that started it. He's the one that's going to bring it to completion. It takes a great work in us. It takes a great work in the church to be what God made it to be. And that's why Jesus could say, I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Because of everything we're seeing repeated here. And then finally we get to chapter 14 which talks a lot about the final day of the Lord. And we have in verses 8 and 9, On that day 
living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half to the west. It shall continue in summer as in winter. We saw in Ezekiel water flowing out from the the temple, going out to the desert, bringing life to a dry, arid land, the Dead Sea turning to fresh water. The book of Revelation talks about, you know, the river uh, that flows from the city of God that goes on. This is a constant reminder of the renewing, refreshing, invigorating work of God. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one. And His name, one. <laughs> Why is that significant? Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Verse 12. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the people who wage war against Jerusalem. Will they come against the people of God. Their flesh will rot while they are standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. <laughs> that something, sounds like something Bill you'd write in one of your you know, searing newsletters against the... Uh, but right? I mean, that's, that's so they won't be able to... Their flesh will... That's a good idea. Not bad, huh? <laughs> that's a good idea. <laughs> maybe you can quote this uh, coming up on the 24th. <clears throat> Those that are... Their flesh will rot while they're standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets. Their tongues will rot in their Chemical warfare. That's yeah, right? Uh, verse 16. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come up against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booze. Okay? Again, all, to, to celebrate God. What's the Feast of Booze, right? God's the, the tabernacles. Right? God tabernacling, tabernacling among his people. It's God being with his people. It's God removing every obstacle. This is yet to be completely fulfilled. Amen? I mean, it hasn't yet. And then in verse 20 and 21, he wraps up, And on that day they shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, Holy to the Lord. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there shall no longer be a traitor or a a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. So you have this complete Persian, you know, God was bringing the people into the land of Canaan, right? When he first began the work that he was doing. And here we say there won't be a single Canaan. There will be an enemy left in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. So, we saw in this, uh, the same thing we have continued to see throughout the Old Testament where God was righteously ruling over his kingdom. We saw how men responded to that and then we saw how God responded to man. And then, Sadly for, for, for the Israelites, for Jerusalem, you know, 70 A.D. was also yet in the future. Uh, and, you know, again, the Jewish people have yet to fully look upon the one that they pierced. So, we've seen a lot of this fulfilled in Jesus. And there's more finally to come. This is why we have the book of the Revelation that tells us a little bit more. This is why we have Jesus, all that discourse that tells us a little bit more. But a lot of the unfolding of what was ultimately going to happen is being shown here by Zechariah through again through all these crazy visions that have uh, something to do with right where they were then, but even though it had to do with right where they were then, they were sort of timeless because there was nothing different than what God had already done and what He will continue to do, except that we continue to see little bit bits and pieces. How exactly is this going to be brought about now that we're back in here, right? And that and that you know, welcome home, nothing's changed, and God is going to do everything He did to make this home where He'll tabernacle among His people full and so 
That's the book of Zechariah. So that's the message that motivated him to rebuild the, to keep the building up of the temple. Yeah, I mean, and consistently motivate God's people to do God's work. You know, throughout, uh, that was a big deal rebuilding the temple, even though they were a little bit disappointed. You know, in fact, we're reading here somewhere it says that those that have despised the day of small things. I mean, could that be a reference to those who were disappointed in the size of the temple, the Jews that wept because they knew the grandeur of the initial temple? And, and uh, yeah, I mean, a constant source of encouragement. This this went to all these people, right? Zechariah turned and shared these these things with the people. So yeah. Um, I was just thinking, that, so holy to the Lord. Didn't they? The priests have that on the thing on their forehead or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they had it somewhere so, on their so, turban or something like that. So, so it went from being on the priest's forehead to being on the bells of the horses, and the horses were the ones that went throughout the land. Yeah, I think that there's some significance to that. Yeah, good connection. Good, good pick up there. All right. Let's descend that holy hill up to Faith Baptist, shall we? Lord, we thank you for our time. We thank you for the prophet Zechariah and what was accomplished in his day by the Spirit. Thank you that there is yet a hope for the many. There's still a hope for your elect people, Israel, that they will one day look upon them whom they pierced. And there'll be a there's a final fulfillment of all things coming. Help us to continually take encouragement by people like the prophets of old to apply it to ourselves and to see when there's discouragement, when there's difficulty, when there's sin. All these consistent visions and promises and every imaginable way you could show us through a kaleidoscopic um, um, array of um, bright colors and pictures and angles what you're doing. Lord, help it to settle in to all of us and resonate deeply through Jesus Christ, our Lord, to your glory. Amen.